John 20, 24 to 29. Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands, and put my fingers where the nails were, and put my hands into his side, I will not believe. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting, believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you've seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Uh, do you know that last reading always gets me, Thomas, 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 Thomas. And I'm not going to believe unless I can see the evidence for myself. You know, I'm not going to believe until I can put my fingers in those holes, my hand in his side. And do you know how many people say similar things today? Not the macabre bit about putting fingers in holes and hands inside, but I'm not going to believe the resurrection. I'm not going to believe all kinds of things until I can see it for myself. I've got the evidence in front of me. Well, the words of Jesus to Thomas still apply today. Stop doubting and believe. So that's what I want to say to you today. Stop doubting and believe. I want to speak to you for a few minutes about the resurrection of Jesus. It happened. It happened. The tomb is empty. Jesus most certainly rose from the dead and he's alive today. Uh, just take you back to that first reading at the beginning in Acts chapter 10. And just look at the tone of Peter's uh, speech in the house of Cornelius. He says in verse 37, I'm sure you heard about the things that happened in Judea and Galilee after the baptism that John preached. You know, John. You know, Peter was referring to somebody that everybody knew. John was a bit of a religious celebrity at the time. Everybody knew about him. And he was referring to places that they knew as well. Peter was in Caesarea at the time, in Cornelius' house, by the seaside. But he was talking about Judea, Galilee, where all this had happened. They knew about this place. They knew about John. They knew about this place. Real people, real places, everybody knew what Peter was talking about. It's a bit like me saying, I got in the car, I went down the motorway, I took Tom with me, it was a couple of weeks ago, we went to this conference in Watford to hear this guy, some of you will have heard about him, it's called Mike Pilavacci, and he said some really great stuff. You know, if I spoke like that to you, you wouldn't think for a second that I was about to tell you a myth or a legend. Now, you'll be expecting me to tell you a real story about something that happened just the other week. Whereas, if I'd used the words, once upon a time, or in a land a long, long time ago, in a land far away, right, 
then in my tone you'd have known straight away that I was speaking in the language of myth, the language of legend and story. Do you get it? Of course, mind you, I love myths. I love legends, I love stories, and they can tell us all kinds of things about the world, about nature, about ourselves. I love them. They're great. Tales of Narnia, Lord of the Rings, Bilbo Baggins, and all that kind of stuff. Fantastic adventures and stories, but I just want to say this, we're not talking about myths today and fairy tales. We're talking about the resurrection of Jesus, and it's no legend. We're not talking about wild and fanciful things. Look, notice something, please. When you read the New Testament, it doesn't sound like the text from some kind of fantasy literature that's out there. There's some really great stories out there, but it doesn't sound like this. It's like when you read the New Testament, every page from Matthew to Revelation has this compelling feel to it. Every page has this kind of tone that the people who wrote it all down want to tell you something, something that happened to them, something that was so extraordinary, something that was so surprising, it knocked them off their feet and sent them around the world to go and tell everybody that they could the extraordinary thing that they'd witnessed and this incredible person they knew who rose from the dead. And another hint of this ring of authenticity is in Acts chapter 10 again. It's the way that, I love this, Peter, it's just so casual in verse 41. He says, he writes about this Jesus who was seen by us and who we ate and drank with, oh, after he rose from the dead. You know, we kind of sat around with him, eating and drinking with him. We, who's he talking about? John and James and his friends, who ate and drank with him. By the way, that's the risen Lord he's talking about. After his resurrection from the dead. Myth, legend, fairy tale, no way. This is someone who's telling you something convincing that happened to them. And this is true, especially when we realize just where the resurrection story led them to. Because all of those disciples, with the exception of John, went to their death. Went to their death defending the truth of the account that they told of these events. You've got to ask, was a myth worth defending with your life? Was a wildly concocted story by some desperate, disillusioned disciples worth dying for? Unless, of course, it was actually true. C.S. Lewis, one of whose academic specialities was the study of mythic language, was that? <laughs> said once, those who say the Gospels are mythic haven't read many myths. The New Testament just doesn't sound like that. The resurrection account just doesn't read like that. I love this story of the running race in John's Gospel. Did you catch that? One of the, the readings when Jesus first appears to the disciples, and uh, sorry, to the empty tomb, when they go to the empty tomb. This running race between the two disciples, Peter and John. Uh, both were running, it says, 
John's writing, by the way, but he says the other disciple, referring to himself, reached the tomb first, just so that you know it's in the Bible for all time. I won. <laughs> I love that. And both of them saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been wound around Jesus' head. John, it says, stayed at the edge of the tomb, and it says that he believed. Did you notice that? Peter enters the tomb, and it doesn't seem to know quite what to make of it at this point, although it does say that both of them didn't quite get the significance of the resurrection. But John says, no, I believed. And you know, it doesn't matter who gets there first, but we all have to get there sometime. The certainty of the empty tomb, the clarity of what it means that Jesus isn't there anymore. There is no grave of Jesus that you can visit today. You know, Peter has one. You can go to Rome. It's called St. Peter's Basilica in Vatican City. And the bones of several other disciples can be found there and in other places too. But Jesus has risen. And his body has never been found. And it wasn't just those first disciples that had the opportunity to meet the risen Lord, there were many other eyewitnesses too. Over the next few months, Jesus appeared on 11 separate occasions in his resurrected state. And on one occasion, more than 500 people were present at the same time and saw Jesus. And last of all, he appeared to Paul, who, by the way, also died for his faith. And so simply, that's what I want to say today. The resurrection happened. The tomb is empty. He is risen and he's alive today. And this is the reason for our hope. And this is what Easter is all about. Amen.